You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, we begin our year in Luke with Luke's introduction to John the Baptist, and so also, at the same time, his account of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. And even in these uh, few verses, just six verses, we see some of Luke's distinctive style uh, begin to emerge, and we're going to see it again and again over the next uh, 12 months. And kind of three features about Luke that kind of come through from these verses that are of interest to us. Firstly, he's very interested in giving a, a clear historical account of Jesus' life. He begins his gospel back in chapter one saying, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. So, and I decided to write an orderly account for you. So Luke is a historian. He's very, very keen on showing his, the historical credentials of what he's saying. He wants to make it very clear. And so you have that in this passage, this list of rulers and uh, places and so on actually enable us to date the ministry of John, of John very, very clearly. Um, Luke is writing a, um, a classical biography. It's an established style in a way. Now, obviously, it's not about um, an ordinary person, so it does break some of the rules. But Luke is writing in a way that his readers, who would have been very reasonably familiar with the format of a biography, would have recognized this, this structure. There are uh, classic forms of introduction, that sort of thing. Uh, Luke is a well-educated man. He is uh, most likely, we, we understand, to be a doctor. So he would have been well-educated, well-traveled. His Greek is sophisticated. His arrangement of the material is very orderly and gracious. So Luke is a historian. Luke also has this um, global vision of the faith. He's a man who has traveled far. And his vision of the faith, the implications of the faith, kind of match this uh, widely traveled character of, uh, of Luke. Um, he expresses more clearly, most clearly, out of all the gospel writers, the sort of global implications of the faith of this, this uh, seed that's planted in, in Israel, growing and, and encompassing the whole world. And so here we see that. Here, our passage starts with, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar. He's, he's got this, for them, what was then, a global vision. He sets this historical frame of reference. His second book, the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, finishes with Paul going to see Caesar, and there's a kind of a, a harmony there of kind of starting with Caesar and going, and see, even Paul ends up before Caesar, and then they turn the whole world upside down. That's another one of his phrases. Uh, he's the only one of the gospel writers to call the Sea of Galilee the Lake of Galilee, because he's been on the Mediterranean, so he knows what a sea is. Um, he's the only one who includes, in his reference to Isaiah that we read today, verse 6, all mankind will see God's salvation. So he's got this, not that the others were unaware of those implications, but Luke makes them really explicit. It's a lovely characteristic of his, this big, big vision of faith. And Luke has this focus that comes through again and again on the way that the kingdom of God, in its vastness and global implications, grows from small things. Seemingly insignificant people and places play an enormous part in the whole story. So he emphasizes in the Gospels, more than the other Gospels, the role of the marginalized and the role of women, especially. Um, and even in this passage, we see this emphasis on the lowly and the small and the marginalized in his, his kind of artful arrangement of the material 
in this passage. If you imagine this introduction, like the trailer of a film, announcing the stars who are going to play in it, and you've got Tiberius Caesar, and Herod the Tetrarch, and who have we got else? Uh, Philip the Tetrarch, and Lysanias, maybe not so, you know, he's a B-list character, but anyway. And St. Caiaphas, you know, uh, high priests. And then, John. <laughs> John who? John the son of Zechariah. But John, what, where's he from? Um, well, he's kind of a homeless guy. He lives in the wilderness. You know, it's, it's, there's a deliberate and an ironic and an almost comical contrast here. Luke is saying, look at this stage, and then down to this guy, lonely guy, John who? The son of Zechariah in the wilderness, away from the palaces, the corridors of power, the thrones, the temple, the lonely guy. And yet, this is where the ministry of Jesus, public ministry of Jesus, begins in a way. So it's that last thing, really, that I want to focus on today, and I think God would like us to focus on today. Um, that really, that realization that God's big plans flow from seemingly insignificant things. That's relevant to us because God's big plans flow from me and from you. Uh, flow from our lives. John's ministry is relevant to us because by it we're reminded that actually we too share in that prophetic ministry as God's people. We're called to be prophets and we're called to do what John did and prepare the way of the Lord. And that's really the sum of God's message to us this morning, that we are uh, prophets. It's a standard Christian belief that every Christian shares in the three primary offices of Christ. You are familiar with the priesthood of all believers. You are familiar, since I preached on it about three months ago, on the kingship of all believers. Now we're talking about, there's not a word for prophetship or prophethood in English, but each of us shares not only in Jesus' priesthood, not only in his kingship, but also in his office of prophet. Um, and what that means succinctly is simply this, that like Jesus, we bear witness to the world by our words and our lives so that the kingdom of God is revealed and Conviction of sin is brought and the light of truth and of salvation is shone. That's our job. Christ shares that ministry with us, which is a wonderful privilege, isn't it? That Christ, the the summation of all the prophets, the one to whom all the prophets pointed and the one who fulfilled every prophetic utterance, shares this act of witnessing with us. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? so that his word is heard everywhere, in every nook and cranny, every niche of human life, every sphere of influence. God wants to bring this word of conviction of sin and light of truth to the world through your words and your lives. That's what God would say to us this morning. John brings his prophetic message to one area, the wilderness and the area around Jordan. He prepares the way in Israel. And he comes with this baptism, uh, this baptism in water, which uh, kind of fulfills this imagery of the wilderness. 
There's this prophetic message because the wilderness is a place of cleansing and of trial and of rebirth. It's where a new nation is born into, isn't it? And this baptism is, is, uh, that he brings is a kind of fulfillment of that. We see in his ministry, we see conviction of sin. We see dozens, hundreds, thousands maybe of people uh, coming out to John and being convicted of sin, repenting and experiencing something like in preparation for Christ, this new birth. But the Bible says that not only will there be a voice in the wilderness, but the desert will be filled with pools of water. The streams of water will run in the wilderness. And that's about not just John, but it's about you. The whole of the wilderness, the wilderness of the world, in all its wastedness and all its sinfulness and all its rebellion against God, desolate of his glory, brought to life again, brought to uh, the light of the kingdom by your lives. God's plan isn't to fill up a few places here and there with his voice. Not just one lonely voice in the wilderness, but the whole world filled with his voice. And through that process, we prepare the way of the Lord. We prepare people's hearts to receive him. The witness of our words and our lives prepares people, enables people to hear the gospel and understand it. And in some mystical way, in some way that's perhaps beyond our understanding, as we live our lives as Christians, as we just as we speak the truth and as we live out the Christian life, we actually prepare the world for the Lord's return. I don't know quite how to join all those dots together, but that's true. We prepare the world for the Lord's return. Now, that doesn't mean that by living Christian lives, we're going to make the world a utopia, and then when it's all perfect, Jesus will come back and say, well done, good job, everyone. There's nothing else to do. No, that ministry that God calls us to, that prophetic ministry, brings conviction of sin. And that may bring repentance, and like in John's ministry, it may bring rejection. But step by step, what it definitely brings is it brings us closer to the Lord's return, that great crisis. You know, the battle lines are being drawn more and more clearly until the time when Jesus will have to return to gather those who are his and to put an end to all evil. Okay, so what does that mean for you in general? It's, it's a message of, um, well, it's just of understanding that that's your role, but also kind of of confidence. Each of us has a different part to play in that prophetic witness. We all have the gifts necessary to play the part that God wants us to play in that filling the whole world with his voice. We all have an understanding of the faith that it's just right to speak his word and to live his word in the place where God has called us to be. We all have the, the words to proclaim the gospel. Now, you may not think you've got much to say. You may not think that your life is distinct. But you can trust God's providence that this is his method. You may think it's silly that God wants to use you to fill the wilderness of the world with his voice. But he thinks it's a great idea. And you can have confidence that he'll do that through you. So the words of Zechariah that we read at the beginning of the service. You, my child, shall go before the Lord to prepare his way to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. That's not just for John. You, my child, that's you. That's God speaking to you and to his church. That's the commission of every Christian. Does that make sense? 
So that's the kind of uh, big picture. I want to bring three kind of specific areas where I think God would uh, speak to us through his word today. Oh, on that picture. I hope that's okay. Firstly, I want to ask you a question. What or where is your wilderness? Where is your wilderness? You know, John's um, place of ministry was not chosen at random. Um, it fulfilled this prophecy of uh, this one, this Elijah who was to come. That is John the Baptist. He is the one who comes before the Messiah to, pre- to prepare the way of the Lord. It is that, and so it is the voice crying in the wilderness. But it's not just any old wilderness. The areas of his ministry, it says in uh, Luke, was the areas all around the country of, of Jordan. And that phrase is a reference to something quite incredible. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, where Lot and Abraham, Abraham go their separate ways. And Lot gets to choose what's going to be his territory. And he chooses, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the phrasing is exactly the same, all the areas around the Jordan. So that's John the Baptist's ministry. Do you know what happened to Lot's areas around the Jordan? They were fruitful. He looked at them, they were beautiful, they were fertile, they were like the Nile Valley. That's what the Bible says. They were like the fertile plains of Egypt. And so he's like, I'm having those. Those are the places where Sodom and Gomorrah were were built and found, and the places that were laid waste by the judgment of God. So these desolate places where John found himself were profoundly symbolic. Symbolic of God bringing life where there was judgment. And people come to this place that was of judgment, where sin itself was burnt up. They come to be cleansed, to begin new life, to restore what was lost, to prepare the way of the Lord. So there's a significance about where John is called to. It connects him and it connects this Bible story. There is a significance to the places God calls you to, to be a prophet on his behalf. So where is your wilderness? This is, God would remind us, he wants us to, to remember this really clearly. Each of us has a ministry to bring the word of God to a place that perhaps no one else can. You have been commissioned and equipped, and God is ready to use you to reach a part of the world that no one else can reach. And that is incredibly significant. You know, to be a prophet doesn't necessarily mean prophesying in the sense of visions and dreams. It can include that, of course. But because we are united with Christ by faith, Each of us has what we need. We have that vision of the kingdom. No matter how kind of developed that is or kind of intuitive it is, we have a vision of the kingdom that we share because we're united with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, giving us his words because we're united with him by faith. And by different ways and different measures, each of us brings the word of God into the world. So what is the wilderness God has called you to? Where is it that you can reach that no one else can? It could be as straightforward as a single person who will never hear the gospel if it's not for you. 
It could be more than one of these things, but think about that. There may be someone who cannot understand the gospel unless they hear the words that come out of your mouth. It doesn't have to come from the front of a church or from some you know, trained and sent evangelist. It may be that your understanding and your words and your context are the very thing they need to hear. It could be a, a workplace. It could be a street where you live. It could be a family who have no connection to the gospel without your influence. It could be so, even bigger, it could be anything from the everyday individual, the family, the street, the neighborhood, the area, of course, we're called to be that as a church to this, to this uh, village, of course, we're called to do that. But individually, it could be that you are called to influence even a nation. It could be that you're, um, by your calling and your gifts, God calls you to witness to his word in some um, specific situation in the world. I was reading um, about a guy who is about to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, a guy called Dennis McQuaigie from um, Congo. He's a doctor, a gynecologist, and a Pentecostal Christian. And he, he, his life's work is to treat the victims of war rape. That's his life's work. And day after day after day, he performs life-saving, life-changing surgery um, which is incredible. Not everyone has that ability, do they? Not everyone has that energy to be able to do that day after day, day after day. But more than that, he uses his voice to raise awareness of the problem. Because there are horrors in the world that I will not speak of from this pulpit that are just unimaginable, that no one would be aware of. No one would go to help. No one would be helping these women without voices like his, raised in a wilderness to say, there are injustices here that Christians can make a difference to. Not, not only is he raising awareness of these crimes that are so barbaric we can hardly even think of them. He, he, he uses his voice to highlight that there are economic pressures. That the kind of rapacity of our, of our developed Western culture that just tries to rake in as many possessions as possible is driving a trade for gold and cobalt in the Congo that's leading to these wars. Now, all of those aspects of this guy's life, and I think he's probably a well-deserved winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, all of these aspects of this Christian's life are distinctly, I think, Christian things that flow out of compassion and understanding of the kingdom and of our place in God's world and of a need to bring justice. He's preparing the way of the Lord, don't you think? Now, we're not all called to win Nobel Peace Prizes. But we're called to stand before Jesus and for him to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, which will be worth far more than that. And you have a role to play as distinctive and as varied, probably more so than what this guy is doing. It's a simple challenge. If you've never thought about it before, just ask God, where is my wilderness? Where are you calling me to be a voice? You know, when you're young, that's, you're starting out, you're just finding out where that is. You know, I'm 39, I'm still finding out where God wants me to be a voice in all the different areas of my life. As life changes and you go through the various stages of life, you know, that context changes and something you've been good at in the past may not be available to you anymore, but there's still a place for you to witness to his word. Ask God to show you what, where is your wilderness. 
Ask him to give you understanding and wisdom and courage to be a voice there. So what's your wilderness? That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, second big kind of application I think God would bring to us this morning is to remind us that family is prophetic. Family is prophetic. Um, it sounds a bit like a tangent, but I really felt it on my heart to bring this to you this morning. And I'll, um, I'll, I'll try and join up the dots for you a little bit. But um, there's a lady who wrote to uh, C.S. Lewis. Had a couple of weeks without a quote from C.S. Lewis, so I thought it was about time we had another one. <laughs> um, a lady called Mrs. Johnson wrote to C.S. Lewis to sort of ask him, what does the Christian life look like? For me, she was a housewife. And she compared her daily routine to the labours of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a guy in Greek legend who, who was cursed by the gods. To, and his, every day he had to roll this enormous boulder to the top of a hill. And then it would roll down the other side, then he had to start all over again. And this lady wrote to C.S. Lewis and says, that's my life. <laughs> Anyone feel like that? Oh, it's funny because I actually remember Abby um, using those very words not too long ago. You know, it's just repetitiveness of family life. It's, um, you, know, you clean up. Uh, at night you go to bed, you wake up, and everything's a mess again. Washing machine cycles, you know, daily routine. It, you know, there's, a, there's a grind about it that makes it hard. And he replies to her, and, and her sense of, is this worth it? Is this meaningful? Am I doing what a Christian should be doing? And, and he replied to her in a, le- a personal letter. He said this, homemaking is surely, in reality, the most important work in the world. What do ships, railways, mines, cars, government, etc. exist for, except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? The homemaker's job is one for which all, other, all others exists. I'm a bit jealous you got a personal letter from C.S. Lewis, to be honest, but aside from that, what, what is he talking about? Well, you know, I think even a, a non-Christian would kind of agree, if you really think about it, what is the home for? It's you know, where we're happy and we're secure and all those things we want to provide for our family. So, but really, he's pointing this woman to a spiritual reality that is profoundly important in our culture. That the family is God's primary prophetic way of bringing that life into the wilderness, of bringing those pools of water in the desert. It's like a a cell that multiplies by which the the whole of the the human race fulfills its its destiny in Christ. You know, Luke has got this perspective of going from the, the grandiose to the small and saying, look, it's the small thing that matters. And if we follow his line of gains, I'm sure he would agree with me in saying this to you, that the family, which seems to our culture so insignificant that we're willing to pretty much chuck it away in the pursuit of economic progress or personal fulfillment, the thing that seems so insignificant, insignificant to our culture is of utmost, significant and, utmost significance and prophetic importance. It will speak loud and clear to the world around us. The Christian family has a unique power to proclaim the kingdom of God, to bring the light of truth, to convict of sin by contrast. To say, you know, people look at that and say, you've got something that I can't have. To bring conviction of sin and then repentance. A powerful, powerful witness to bring people to Christ. 
It's prophetic. You might, I think it's fairly obvious, but you might say, how does family do that? Well, family is a place where our conscience is formed. It's where we learn our truest lessons about love, what love is, and about grace. It's where we learn to pray and even worship. It's where we get our primary education in the faith. It's where we learn how to live as Christians in the world. It incarnates on a more kind of more mystical level. Family incarnates triune love for people to experience and see. It, it images God. It gives meaning to the world around us. It fills the world with imagery that makes sense of salvation. Father, son, new birth. I mean, this could go on. We could, you know, we could go on forever and ever how important family is. Jesus grew up in a family. It's just obvious, isn't it? But he was fully human. And part of that full humanity was that he grew up in a family. That was part of his social existence. And if it was necessary for him to be fully human, like all my other arguments pretty much could fade into the background, really, if Jesus did it. Family is important, right? So much light pours forth from family life. So much good comes from it. That if we live as God directs, in that holiness and sanctity of marriage and family, the world won't be able to help itself. I think there's a day coming when people will stream to see church families like they streamed out to see John in the desert to come, first of all, to gawp and say, what is this? You know, a friend of mine, um, a pastor, his wife was talking to someone in the village where they lived and um, they've got four kids like us and um, uh, this pastor's wife was talking to someone and, and she said, how many children have you got? And uh, pastor's wife said, we've got four. And the lady who she was talking to said, oh, that's great. Are you still in touch with any of the dads? Are you, okay, laugh or tart or sigh, whatever. Guys, that is not an unusual question in our culture. She fully expected there to be two, three or four fathers and was gobsmacked when this pastor's wife said, no, they've all got one dad. Guys, I wonder if we're a little naive sometimes about how much things have changed in the world around us in the last 20, 30, 40 years. I'm not saying that to, to mock or to judge this, this other woman. That's her everyday experience. She's not unusually wicked or any of those things. You know, she's just, that's her normality. But we have something that's so gobsmackingly precious, so contrasting, it will be prophetic in our culture. We underestimate the, the power of the Christian vision of life, uh, marriage and family life. So let me just bring a challenge to you. Whatever stage you are at in life, married or unmarried, young and married or old and married, or wherever you're at, just bring this challenge to to you who are in marriages. Firstly, to live a prophetic life. So men and women together, that means rejecting the Caesars, the Herods, the high priests of that this culture offers us. The things that look big and important and just aren't. Possessions, wealth, vanity, self, uh, selfish experience seeking, status, worldly success. They are just nothings. Embrace instead the call to see uh, your lives as the greatest work that you're called to. Where is your wilderness? If you're married, at least part of that answer is your marriage. That's where you're called to, to be a prophet. So sanctify each other in mutual agape love that overflows. 
Seek to have children. And if God blesses you with children, bring them up as image bearers of God, well-formed in their faith, full of his character. And you will speak loud and clear to the world in probably more ways than you can do in any other sphere of your life. Wives, it says controversially in the book of Titus, be busy at home. But you know, that's in God's word. And it doesn't mean that you women aren't supposed to work or have jobs or have careers or have equal opportunities, any of those things. But what it recognizes there is a unique thing that women can do that men cannot. Babies. Well, and more than that, though, in a way, the ability to have children, to bear children, it's, it's not, that's not the whole thing. That's a, that's a kind of symbol of femininity in itself. That life-giving. Whether you have children or not, women, you're called to be givers of life in a way that men cannot be. And that, that's what Paul's getting at in Titus. He's saying, be this life-giver in the home. Because the home is so important to your husband and to you and to children if you have them. There's something uniquely feminine about filling a home with spiritual life. I hope it doesn't seem like I'm, you know, I'm being too controversial here. If I'm clumsy with my words, forgive me, but I think there's a profound truth in the midst of this, of this thing. You know, if you seek a career, that's good, but not to the extent that it would compromise home life. Don't listen to that voice that says you can't be equal with men unless you have exactly the same things as them. All that is, that's, that's a false feminism that just offers masculinity in the place of femininity. You know, and, and more than that, family life shouldn't just be a place where, that, that's, uh, a home shouldn't just be a place that's pleasant and orderly and all those things that I certainly as a man am really rubbish at. But what women, what you have that you can bring that's unique to you, I think, or certainly much stronger in you than it is in men, is spiritual beauty. You can create in your homes beauty, grace, peace, joy, gentleness, an atmosphere of the kingdom. And I think, that's, I think it's okay to say that's, that's your unique gift, to, give, to bring that life. And, and, and in this prophetic role as a family, men too, I think God would speak to us um, directly and, and in a way that you know, kind of addresses our unique gifts and our unique place. We are, yes, to provide and protect and all those things that are considered stereotypical now. And of course, to lead in some sense, that's, that's kind of, there's some essence, as hard as it is to grasp and to boil down, there is some essence of that in masculinity. If you men set the right tone, the right boundaries, the right direction, the right spiritual atmosphere, if you nurture your wives spiritually, then you will enable uh, your family, your home, to be a place of, like, it'll be a prophetic powerhouse. That's, that's your job to do that. But without your leadership, your wives will struggle. They will struggle to fulfill their duty. So we, we have to know that, you know, it's that precious cargo that we're called to protect men. It's got to take top priority in the way that we order our lives. 
A man's work should never be the cause of division in the family. It should always promote unity and stability. Your work, men, should always promote unity and stability in your family. Why? Because it's the family that's important. You know, it says in Scripture, again, controversially, that women are like a weaker vessel. They may be a weaker vessel, but their cargo is far more precious. That's what God wants us to see. We mustn't get caught up in the trap of thinking that our work, men, which the world values disproportionately highly and will reward you financially and in status massively for, is the thing of greatest value. It's not. In your unit, as a married couple, it's your wife's life-giving power. Literally in childbearing and more widely in her femininity, which is where God's glory is proclaimed powerfully to the world. There is an inverted relationship in the kingdom of God that God would point us to that the world struggles to recognize. I think that's an important message for our culture where femininity is twisted to look like masculinity and men are losing all their direction and all the sense of purpose and so on. We can speak profoundly powerfully to the world around us. So God is calling us to get our priorities right. Men, to think again and think hard about what is most important, what our lives are for. Are you prioritizing your families as you should? If you work so hard that you can't provide spiritual leadership in your home, it is all for nothing. Paul writes, he does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And I think you can see in that statement, not just a statement about material goods, but about spiritual leadership too. And so, yes, it will take hard choices. It will take God's help and wisdom. But if we make his will the the desire of our hearts, he will give us the answers. You know, I I don't want to... Advent is a time when we we get ready to meet the Lord. I don't want to meet the Lord and him to say, Jeff, you Wally, it wasn't about you. (laughs) It was about Abby. (laughs) You know? And so often I'm in danger of, of, of living like that. Thinking that what I do is more important because the world recognizes it so quickly just by virtue of its masculinity. You know, I don't want to miss those opportunities, that fullness. Together, we speak prophetically and powerfully to the world. Of course, it's true, very you know, briefly, it's worth saying. Uh, this is true for not just as parents and husband and wife, but also for us as children as well, whether you're an old child or a young child. The way we treat our parents, the way we submit to them and honour them, in our youth and our old age, is profoundly prophetic to the world. I think you can, you can imagine the implications of that. If you're, if you're thinking of marriage, or you're thinking of having children, or more children, let that vision of prophetic power spur you into decision-making. If you're single, then trust. This is, there's, a, there's a kind of... There's a powerful compliment in singleness. That if that vision of marriage is so powerful, as I've said this morning, if God has providentially led you to singleness, he must have something really important for you to do, right? That's that's the conclusion you have to draw. And the onus is on you to ask him, where are you calling me to be a prophet? And trust him that he will lead you. He's not led you into the situation for nothing, but for something amazing.
So family is prophetic. Where is your wilderness? Thirdly then, fill in your valleys, make your mountains low. There's an ancient uh, Greek play by a guy called Aeschylus, uh, which would have been written not long after Isaiah was uh, written. And it's about the Greek king Agamemnon. He returns home from the battle uh, of Troy and finds his wife has rolled out a red carpet um, for him to walk across as he enters his house. Apparently a sign of great honour. That's where we get our red carpet events from. And then Hollywood celebrities walk down, you know, this is the earliest reference we have to a red carpet. Ironically, in the story, he doesn't know, but it's actually a trap. The honour is so great that it's actually reserved for the gods. And when he agrees to step on it, he curses himself um, and comes under the wrath of the gods. That seals his fate and he's a goner, basically. That's, to sum up, a a long story. Um, And it's kind of lucky, I think, for our Hollywood celebrities that the real god isn't quite as capricious as the Greek ones. Well, anyway, rolling out the red carpet is what Luke is talking about when he quotes Isaiah in his verses. That's the symbolism. It's maybe a slightly more familiar symbol to us. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley should be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road should become straight, the rough way smooth. It's about welcoming royalty and honour. That's what John is doing. He's rolling out the red carpet when when he fulfills this prophecy. He's preparing the the ground. He's making the arrival of Jesus as smooth and as honourable as possible by calling the people of Israel to repentance. For us, that picture of filling in valleys and making mountains low, that speaks to our prophetic role in the world. What does it mean to be a prophet? We are on the biggest scale. We are called to tear down strongholds to confront powers and principalities. That's the, that's the flattening of mountains right there. By rejecting pride, by laughing at the vainglory of the world and, and turning away from it, by living differently, by, by standing whether in attitude or in action against the structures of power and oppression that oppose the kingdom of God. We're, we're called to this massive job. And it's, it's so big, it might go over our heads a little bit on a Sunday morning in December. We're also called to another big job. We're called to fill in the valleys by raising up, by lifting up the lowly, by valuing those things of true earth, like I was talking about family, things of true earth that are easily ignored by the world. Lifting up the lowly, the vulnerable, the weak, the marginalized, the family, the child, the unborn, recognizing the image of God, where often it's ignored. So that's that's a big picture of this Flattening hills and filling in valleys, but there's a more personal application that God would confront us with at this season. What are, what hills need to be made low in your life? What valleys need to be filled in? What is taking up too much of your time or your effort, your desire, your thoughts? What's not taking up enough? It's worth just taking time every now and then to think about these things and to reset, isn't it? So what are the things like valleys, valleys that are too easily ignored in your life that need to be raised up? How well do you steward your finances? How much do you give to the poor, to the support of the gospel? 
How much time do you give to those in need, practically or emotionally? To those, you know, classic categories Jesus gives us, to the hungry, the homeless, the imprisoned. And all those who would fit somewhere in between those things. How much time do you spend in prayer? In God's word? How much do you honour the weekly worship of the Lord and see it as the every Sunday as the, the greatest feast day in the church? Honour the Sabbath and give him your trust with a day off. Ask God to show you what valleys need to be filled in, need to be raised up, what's not taking enough importance. And what are the things like mountains that take up too much time, that dominate your horizon, that overshadow every other part of your life? Worry or money or food, ambitions or distractions, some sin. God wants us to have level paths not just so we can arrive in our lives but so we can be free to follow him wherever he leads us and there are things now that maybe dominate your life like living on a mountain every day is a a struggle because you've got to go up and down up and down God wants you to be free now is the time to make level the path of the Lord you know in the midst of all that bring that challenge to you because we have um, but we have to remember that this is not just about it's Advent, it's nearly Christmas, I've got to pull my socks up and try really hard. It's not about willpower, but it's about remembering the power of the grace of Christ. You know, what an amazing picture John's ministry to the desolate wastes of Sodom and Gomorrah. What a picture that is of the cross. What more desolate places there than Golgotha? where the Son of Man put himself in the hands of men to die? What place of greater life-giving abundance is there than Golgotha, where water and blood flowed from his side, like a a river of life? So yes, it's a challenge to re-examine our lives, but not just to go and try, try, try but to come again to that wilderness, that desolate place, the cross, and look upon Christ and see the one who can bring life to the dead. Make a desert into a jungle. He comes, yes, to judge, but by way of the cross to cleanse, but also to heal and bring life. So as we remember his power at work in us, God calls us to see yes, to see the wilderness of our life, to see the change that we need, but through his eyes, eyes opened by grace to what is possible in Christ. Isaiah speaks in chapter 31 of what God sees when he looks upon his children. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. 
the thirsty ground bubbling springs, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Amen. Let's pray.